Welcome back to the Spirits Guide Podcast. I am Rich, your guide through the intoxicating world of spirits, books, movies, music, and anything else that I feel like connects us as humans. And I want to start out by saying, as always, thank you guys for taking a little bit of time out of your day, out of your week, out of your life to listen to me, to be here on the podcast, to share this with me. Uh, it means everything to me. And uh, let's just get right into it. It is Bourbon Heritage Month. Uh, so we are talking all things bourbon, the truth, the myth, and you know the silliness that is this time of year. Uh, <clears throat> I don't know when Bourbon Heritage Month became a thing. Uh, I feel like it's a, a recent thing that's kind of a what you'd call a hallmark holiday, I, I suppose. Um, and it, it's cool because it can celebrate bourbon, but it is also the start of hunting season. It's the start of me uh, getting inundated with ridiculous questions and silly people uh, looking for status bottles. And, you know, it's it's when all the limited releases come out, uh, not all of them, but a lot of them, especially the big ones come out around this time of year. I don't know what happens every time I sit down and get ready to record. I start to get a stuffy nose. I don't know if that's some sort of anxious response or whatever it is. Uh, oh. No, there we go. We're off to a good start. So yeah, we're going to talk a lot about bourbon and, and drink some bourbon and yeah, see where we go from here. Uh, as you guys know, uh, unedited, unfiltered, unscripted, and largely unprepared. But here we go. What's going on in the spirits world this week? Well, this was interesting to me. Well, I'll, I'll get to it uh, as we go here. Uh, first off, the world getting smaller and smaller, um, you know, at, at some point in our future, all the spirits are going to be owned by either Diageo, Pernod Ricard, Constellation, um, Picard, like there, there's just going to be five major corporations that own the whole spirits industry. That is frightening to me. Um, but Bacardi buys illegal Mezcal. Now, I've tried the Illegal Mezcals. Uh, it's a great story. It's a brand that's only, I don't know, four or five years old or whatever. Um, and it's it's kind of, uh, I guess, a status bottle in the category of, of Mezcal. Uh, and there's a, a really there's a really cool story about the guy and how he started the brand and all that. Um, but the bottom line is, is now Bacardi owns them. And again it's just the rich get richer the big get bigger and and that works its way down and people go like well why do you care why does that bother you because all they're doing is creating brands and you know it just becomes this pipeline of like a diageo just running stuff through their local wholesaler which uh, for me, a lot of the Diageo stuff comes through a company called Martinetti. And then the Martinetti sales reps are running all their Diageo products through my store and largely ignoring like real brands that have real people behind them or ruining those brands uh, that had real people behind them, uh, which is why um, my conversation with Dan Dehart from Grand Rum was so great because it's a real brand. Uh, and there's a real human being behind that brand. By the way, that podcast is ready to go. I'm going to release that in a couple weeks. Also, God, how did I not uh, skip right over this? Uh, the first 
official Spirits Guide Roundtable Inner Circle Discussion Panel uh, is happening in, well, two weeks from when I'm recording this. Uh, might be a week from uh, when this podcast gets dropped. But I'm so excited. Three of my favorite people to drink with, uh, my friend Glenn, my friend Peter Thomas, uh, and Corey. Uh, Corey and Peter have both been on this podcast in the past. Glenn has done some Whiskey Wednesday videos for me at Wachusett Wine and Spirits. And they're just very knowledgeable, um, just fun people to drink with. Uh, these are the conversations that we have while we're drinking, not only bourbon, but all kinds of spirits. Uh, and what I like about my friends, and you know, I used to have this saying of, I thought, you know, that my friends were great because they were just like me. And in, 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 in the end, it's that I was great because I'm just like my friends. Um, they're just great human beings. They're fun to be around. Uh, we have great, great conversations and I can't wait. Obviously it's bourbon heritage month. So we're going to be talking bourbon, but what you're going to get is, you know, people who come together over spirits. And that's really what this whole spirits thing is about. Uh, at least for me is about bringing people together and having discussions. You know, we all have slightly different backgrounds. We're all slightly different ages. Um, we're all at slightly different phases of our bourbon drinking, um, sort of experiences. And yet we can all come together and enjoy a bourbon. Um, and just have great conversation. So I don't know where that conversation will go. If we'll get super geeky about the spirit or if we'll talk football or music or movies or whatever it is. Uh, but we are going to get together. <laughs> we are going to get drunk and we are going to have some fun, uh, hopefully entertaining conversation. Uh, and I can't wait to share that with you guys. Um, so, all right. So you guys heard that cork pop. And the first bourbon that I'm drinking, this is from Driftless Glen. Um, I've worked with this whiskey in the past at my store. Um, unfortunately, you know, they're out of Wisconsin and a lot of the bourbon chirpers, as I just now call them, uh, you know, the best bourbon in the world has to come from Kentucky. It doesn't. And I've had bourbon from Driftless Glen in the past. It's really good. Um, it's a really good story. It's a husband and wife team out of Wisconsin. Everything is grown, distilled, aged, bottled in Wisconsin. By the way, I don't care where the whiskey comes from as long as it's good. But if you're looking for transparency, if you're looking for authenticity, when you flip the bottle around and look at the back label, look for words like distilled, aged, and bottled because sometimes it might say produced for. Well, that doesn't mean that, you know, there's a, a distillery of that brand. It just means that they bought whiskey from somebody else and then they barreled it. Not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, I kind of, on both sides of the coin with that of, as long as the whiskey's good, the whiskey's good. But also if you're not telling me where the whiskey's coming from, I wonder what you have to hide. And, you know, sometimes it's, it's worded in a way that makes it seem like this is an actual distillery and brand when it says produced for bottled by. Um, so I'm always looking for 
again, I don't mind if it's sourced bourbon, but also when I look at the back of this bottle and it says distilled, aged, and bottled by Driftless Glen Distillery in Wisconsin, I know I'm getting more of their personality. And nothing against, again, sourced bourbons, but the personality you're getting there is of the blender. They're buying product that somebody else made, and then they're blending it to their profile. When it's distilled, aged, and bottled by, it's distilled in accordance to their personality. It's aged and bottled. You know, like everything is everything is them, um, whereas sourced whiskey, the personality is all in the blend. This is personality start to finish. Now, this was a gift from my friend Glenn, who will be joining me uh, in a week or so for that roundtable discussion. This is a single barrel store pick. Um, it just says hand selected by spirits uh, in some town in Massachusetts where it's so small. I don't know. I just can't quite read it, but irrelevant. Single barrel store pick aged 63 months. So, you know. Get out your your, cal- your calculator. It's a little over five years. It's got the barrel number. It's got who it's bottled by, which is Casey. Um, not that that means anything to me, but I'm sure Casey is very proud of that. And it is bottled at 96 proof. It's a proof point that I love. And I know the chirpers out there, oh, it's not 135. We're going to talk about proof more. All right. Mash bill on this, not that that tells the whole story. And again, I'm really on this kick lately of the chirpers who think that uh, the mash bill, the proof, and the age tell the whole story of everything. And, you know, this past week on my Whiskey Wednesday video for Wachusett Wine and Spirits, we tasted five bourbons that were all under 90. And we did them blind. I had my friend Glenn on. He didn't know what the concept of the tasting was. He kind of walked in late. Corey couldn't make it, uh, so he kind of stepped in. I had the concept all set up of we were going to blind taste five bourbons below 90. Below 90 what? I didn't say. I kind of left it out there for people to believe below $90, but the reality of it was that it was below 90 proof. And we tasted Wild Turkey 81, Old Forester 86, uh Four Roses Yellow Label, Evan Williams Black Label, and Jim Beam White Label. Five incredible whiskeys. And when I revealed them all, sort of the look on Glenn's face was like, whoa. You know, because you forget how good those whiskeys are. And those those are the girls we brought to the dance uh, before we started looking around for the the you know the prom queen. Those are are the bottles that we kind of learned to love bourbon on and we learned to appreciate before we started to go after these bigger bottles. And now that we've realized what a scam uh, these, you know, allocated bourbons are, uh, we're all going back to these bourbons because they're available, affordable, delicious. And, you know, really when you're talking proof, proof may indicate flavor. There may be an effect on the flavor of the whiskey based on the proof. There may not. Um, You know, one of the whiskeys I get to taste this week was from my friend Derek, who has some, you know, he survived cancer at a point in his life and now enjoys his life. And, you know, he's married, he's got kids, that's his whole world. And he doesn't really 
go out or do anything. He doesn't have any vices. And the only thing he really spends money on is good bourbon. Now, he's not chasing down the pappies of the world, but he's looking for other good bourbons. And he had one that was in his collection that he hadn't opened for a while, brought it in to share with me, which, again, I, I love the fact that I work in a liquor store and I have customers who bring in bottles to share with me. It just, it, it shows the best of what this spirits community can be. Um, and it, it offsets the worst of what the, this community can be. And Derek brought in a bottle that he's had for a couple of years, just open. It was a Russell's reserve 16 year single barrel offering. I had never even seen this bottle. I never knew it even existed. Uh, beautiful packaging, wood case. Pulled the bottle out. The proof on it, 89.6. And I got excited. Now, I know all the chirpers out there are like, whoa, it's not a hazmat. It can't be any good. Let me tell you something. There are a lot of things that go into affecting proof. Uh where it is in the rickhouse, obviously top floor as opposed to bottom floor. But the other thing is barrel entry. And this particular bottle went into barrel at 107. Now, for anybody out there who doesn't know what that means, when you distill bourbon, when you make your mash and you ferment it and then you cook it to increase the alcohol, you can distill it up to 160 proof by law to be considered bourbon. You can distill it to 180 or 190, um, and you can call it whatever you want, but you can't call it bourbon. From that 160, you have to water it down to 125 before you can go into the barrel for aging. 125 is the highest you can go into a barrel to age it. This particular bottling went into barrel at either 107 or 110. I forget which one. So it went into the barrel at a much lower proof. What that means is that in the end, you know, you lost a little bit of alcohol, but what you gained was this intense, intense, rich flavor. And for an 89 proof bourbon that's 16 years old, it drank like butterscotch and caramel with pink peppercorns in it. It is without a doubt, the second greatest bourbon I have ever tasted. Number one, Parker's Heritage Double Barrel, which was last fall's release, which didn't hit Massachusetts until the beginning of 2023. That, to this day, is the best bourbon I've ever tasted. But right behind it, number two, this Russell's 16-year. And they couldn't be any further apart in proof points because I believe the Parker's was cask. Um and this was cask, but this was cask at 89. Um, so proof doesn't always indicate what you're going to get for flavor. You know what proof indicates? How drunk you're going to get drinking that. That is it. All right. 96 proof. Man, I'm long-winded on this one. All right. Here we go. Mm. Mm, 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 mm. That is so good. Balanced, harmonious, dark sort of cocoa flavors, some nice vanilla, some nice spice in the end. By the way, mash bill, 60 corn, 20 rye, 20 barley. Mash bill, 
also doesn't always tell the whole story. There's so many things that go into the flavoring of bourbon, not the flavoring, that's a poor term, but that go into creating the flavors of bourbon that, you know, we talked about it last week that Bakers and Knob Creek are the same mash bill. They couldn't taste any more different. Um, Evan Williams and Elijah Craig are the same mash bill. Couldn't taste any more different. Pikesville and Rittenhouse are the same rye mash bill. Couldn't be any more different. So there's a lot more that goes into it. Um, so I know everybody wants to look like they're smart, but just because you know the mash bill or you know the proof doesn't mean you know that it's good. It just means you know the recipe. All right, back to the news of the week, because there's something on here that I really, really want to get to. Um, the Coors Whiskey Company, which is the company behind Barman and Five Trails. I talked about those two whiskeys when I got back from Kentucky. I told the story of how David Coors went to his father, wanted to get into the whiskey business, and he said, absolutely not. We make beer. That's what we do. Uh, don't mess with the system. David Coors ended up going out and starting the Coors Whiskey Company. They source their whiskey. Um, no problem with it. They're full disclosure on where it's coming from. Uh, Five Trails American Whiskey. It's not labeled as bourbon. It can't be good. Shut up. It's a great bottle of whiskey for a good price. A um, lot of flavor, a lot of complexity. And then the Barman Bourbon, uh, which is like their entry-level bourbon. Nothing wrong with it. Doesn't. You know, it's not going to make your hair stand up, but it's just really good bourbon for the money. Uh, they have now added Blue Run to the Coors Whiskey Company. You know, Blue Run, it's got the pretty bottle with the butterfly on it. And they're about to build this multi-million dollar distillery. Jim Rutledge was involved in the project who... I like Jim Rutledge at Four Roses, but since then... Uh, his sort of mindset of bourbon that you have to have an expensive bourbon uh, right out of the gate. I don't really like that. Um, but yeah, Blue Run is now under the Coors Whiskey umbrella. So you might see a tasting. Actually, I just saw one pop up at a local liquor store around here. Julio's actually local, but it's kind of nationally recognized uh, where David Coors was there uh, pouring all the Blue Run exp expressions and the barman and the five trails. Now, speaking of Blue Run, one of the co-founders of Blue Run, a guy named Tim Sparapani, hopefully I pronounced that right, Sparapani, um, partnered up with a guy named Justin Ware and actor Matthew Lillard to create a bourbon called Quest End. Now, Matthew Lillard, he's kind of one of those guys you've seen in TVs and movies where you're like, oh, I recognize that guy. I've seen him in other movies. I don't know his name, though. Uh, I know he's done some episodes of, like, Law and Order. He was in a movie called 13 Ghosts, kind of appropriate. We're coming up on spooky season and Halloween. Um, he played Shaggy in one of the first live-action Scooby-Doo movies. He's done a, a few other things. Uh, if you Google Matthew Lillard, you see his face. You'll be like, oh, yeah, I know that guy. I never knew he had a name. Um, that's what you call a great character actor. The bourbon is called Quest End. I've got all kinds of issues with this. So Quest End is a Dungeons and Dragons themed bourbon. Are you thinking like, did he take some gummies? Is this a fever dream? No, this is not a fever dream. It is a Dungeons and Dragons 
themed bourbon. Look it up. The packaging, fantastic. Very, very cool. Uh, not very drinkable, but it looks very decorative. And here's the thing. There's going to be 16 different bottlings released. And each bottling will have a new saga. I, I don't fully understand the mechanics of the Dungeons & Dragons game. I have friends and family who played it when they were younger. Um, apparently, some people still play it as they get older. Um, but I do know that whoever is sort of running the game, it's a tabletop kind of role-playing game thing. Uh, there's a dungeon master who kind of sets the story, creates the story of the mission that they all go on. Uh, and if you play Dungeons & Dragons, and I just butchered that, I apologize, no disrespect intended. I just don't know a ton about the game. That's enough that I know. Um, but each bottling will come with a new saga written by world-renowned dungeon master Kate Welch. There's a world-renowned dungeon master for D&D? Um, if you don't know what D&D is, uh, the show Stranger Things which is kind of based on D&D. They play Dungeons & Dragons in that show, um, at least in the first couple seasons. I didn't see the last season of it. Great, great show, by the way. Yes, there's a world dungeon master named Kate Welsh. Um, so there'll be a different Dungeons & Dragons story, saga, mission. I don't know what they call it. Um, it's listed as saga in the press release for every bottle. Now, here's where I started to run into an issue with this. Matthew Lillard, uh, by the way, Matthew Lillard and Justin Ware also have a company um, where they create luxury merchandise for tabletop games like Dungeons and & Dragons and Magic, The Gathering. And again, I have a lot of friends who play Magic and Dungeons and & Dragons um, uh, where I go to buy a lot of my used vinyl. There's always a magic tournament going on there. Um, so not to stereotype, but there's typically a kind of person who would rather be playing magic on Sunday than drinking bourbon and watching football on Sunday. Not better, not worse, just different, and that is okay. Here's the quote that kind of got me, though. And this is directly from Matthew Lillard on the press release for this bourbon. Communities respond when you pay them the respect of building something luxury for them. Are you fucking kidding me? Is that is that where this is at for bourbon? Um, that the Dungeons and Dragons community, which I never thought was a phrase I would even say, um, is going to respect you because you built something luxury. And just to reinforce that it is luxury, MSRP, $150 a bottle. So 16 different bottles in a bottle that's not really designed to pour. It's designed more to be a showpiece that each has a different saga. Sounds more like a collectible whiskey than a drinkable whiskey. It also sounds like the perfect scam for me because a lot of the people I know who play magic and, and dungeons and dragons, and maybe it's 50, 50. I don't know. Um, not huge bourbon drinkers. Definitely not the kind of people who would spend $150 on a bottle of bourbon to drink. They'll spend $150 on a magic card or a Dungeons and Dragons piece to further their 
gameplay, they'll spend that on a magic card to actually use in a tournament and win more money. That absolutely, I understand. That's like, you know, if you own a nice car and you want to put nice tires on it, you'll spend a lot of money for the top level tires for your car. I just put on tires that'll make my car fucking roll. I don't care about it that much. It's a car. It gets me to work and it gets me home. But the idea that people will respect you because you create something luxury, this is obviously not meant to be consumed. You could take fighting cock whiskey, which is awful, and put it in this bottle and get away with it because 90% of these bottles will never be open. Because if you pay $150 for a bottle that is a you know themed like this, and, and each bottle is different, and each bottle has a different story, why would you open it? And it's limited. So it's not like you can open it and then buy another one to replace it. it it's like Blanton's to the extreme. Like you want the whole set with all the horses in full bottles. You know, it, it's half the people who buy, you know, high-end Pappy, they're never going to open it. Um, but the concept of luxury, and this really troubles me because it it basically to me, it's almost condescending um, and pandering. Um, but the fact of luxury, here's what luxury is. Luxury is something that not everybody can have. Luxury is something that's limited. Um, you know, getting to go on vacation is a luxury. It's something, you know, that you get time off from work and you save your money. And that's a luxury. Um, Unless you're a billionaire, you don't get to live on a gorgeous beach every day of your life. For most of us, it's a luxury. For a billionaire, it's mundane. It's just what we do every day. You know, to, to buy your fiance a diamond, that's a luxury piece. If she's got a whole fistful of diamonds, it's not really luxury. It's just another ring in the collection. So luxury is something that is for people at the top. It's limited. Like if there was, you know, unlimited supplies of things, they wouldn't be luxury. So, you know, like you're saying luxury is where we want to go. And I see this in spirits all the time, for going after the luxury category, going after the luxury category. So you're going after the people with money. So one, it's really expensive for the market that you think respects you because you created something luxury for us. Oh, thank you. Um, it's also available only on Sealbox, which is a online spirit store that ships. Here's the problem. They don't ship to every state in the U.S. So you created a luxury product that's not even accessible to all of the market that you want to be respected by. There are Dungeons and Dragons players in Mexico, in Canada, in Australia, in New Zealand, Spain, in France. Sealbox doesn't ship overseas. At least I don't think they do. Um, so again, you made a luxury product that nobody has access to. That's the same bullshit that we go through with Pappy. Here's a luxury product. It's really great, but we're not going to make it available to any of you. And the hoops you have to go through to get it, you know, just proves that your values are in the wrong place. I'm telling you, if you're out there, you're one of my friends who play magic cards, Spend 150 bucks on that card that is going to win you a tournament that's going to win you $1,000.
Do not spend $150 on a bottle of whiskey that you're never going to open. That's just going to sit there, collect dust and stare at you. And I don't think it's going to make you the envy of any other magic card players or Dungeons and Dragon players. It's just going to make you out 150 bucks. Um, and really this whole chasing the luxury category thing is really driving me nuts because it really affirms that these spirits are trying to be exclusive and not inclusive. Um, and I really hope that more people start to see that that's the manipulation that we're being put under is our value. We value this luxury thing um, that is exclusive as opposed to me sitting around with my friends, Corey and Peter and Glenn and drinking a bottle of old Forrester 86 proof for under 30 bucks. That is inclusive that we all can afford, enjoy and have conversations with. All right. I am going to take a quick break, finish up this glass of Driftless Glen, um, get back into some of the other news of the week, talk some more bourbon truths, more bourbon myths. All right. I'll be back in a second. All right. I am back. Uh, you might hear some distant noise in the background. There's some construction going on um, upstairs from me. Uh, that is rather, rather annoying. Um, all right. Did I get that cork pop in there? Let me try that again. There we go. That cork pop is from my next bourbon. And this is another one that was a gift to me. Um, not available here in Massachusetts. Uh, recently, my girlfriend's family came up, well, her mother, um, and as a sort of joking bribe gift, she brought me a bottle of whiskey. I always appreciate it, you know, for, you know, the guy who has every bottle of whiskey. What does he need? One more bottle of whiskey. Um, but this is a special one. Uh, I really do appreciate it. And I, I wasn't sure if I was going to drink this one on this podcast because I want to do a whole podcast about these guys because everything they do is just interesting cool delicious this is chattanooga bottled in bond uh this is the spring 2019 vintage uh which means it was bottled in 2023 so hitting that four year mark and bottled in bond to me is like a, a very pure form of whiskey uh but i think again that there are consumers out there who are like it's bottled in bond it tastes good bottled in bond doesn't necessarily mean it tastes good Here's what bottled in bond means. It means that it was made by one distiller in one distilling season. So whoever the master distiller is, they're the only ones that made that. If you do a switch of master distillers in the middle of a season, which is January to June or June to December, say Joe is the master distiller in February, but he quits and Jane becomes the master distiller in May. You can't mingle the May barrels and the February barrels into this bottle. Different distillers disqualifies it from bottled in bond. So one distiller in one distilling season, aged for a minimum of four years in a government supervised warehouse, bottled at exactly 100 proof. It can be aged for more than four years. Henry McKenna is 10 years. Um, but Henry McKenna is also a bottle that proves that being bottled in bond doesn't mean it's great. Being 10 years old doesn't mean it's great. It means it can be. And I've had bottles of Henry McKenna 
single barrel, 10-year, bottled and bond, all the right buzzwords that are unbelievable. One of the best whiskeys I tasted in 2022 was a Henry McKenna 10-year uh, single barrel bottled and bond. One of the worst whiskeys I tasted the year before that was a Henry McKenna 10-year single barrel bottled and bond, uh, which I love because it at least shows that it's a true single barrel bourbon, uh, which means that it has bottle variants. That's all that that means. It's just sort of designations. Now, the Bottled and Bond Act, since we're talking bourbon history, is the first consumer protection law enacted in this country in 1897 by Colonel Edmund Hayes Taylor, who was friends with the Secretary of Treasury Carlisle at the time. And they came up with this law because at that point in time, people were buying whiskey from different distilleries. Very rarely did a distillery bottle its own whiskey. They just made it and sold it by the barrel to general stores or to what was known as rectifiers, which in modern day of people like barrel craft spirits, um, those clowns at rare character. And I stand by that. They're clowns. Um, I'll explain why in a little bit. Um, but they were putting things that weren't whiskey, distilled molasses, um, hazardous chemicals, things for color. And E.H. Taylor decided like that's just it doesn't protect our whiskey. So to protect the distillers, they created the Bottled and Bond Act um, so that you could sell bonded whiskey so that consumers would know that it's pure whiskey, unadulterated. No flavoring, coloring, chemicals added. The history of bourbon progresses to 1906, which is the Pure Food and Drug Act. Basically, what that said is if you put it on the label, it has to be true. Now, we run into some semantical issues there uh, because sometimes the wordings that are on the label don't actually have any meaning behind them, but we give them credit. And so that gets a little dangerous. In 1906, William Howard Taft has the whiskey decision. He literally federally defines what whiskey is, not what bourbon is, but what whiskey is, the definition that we know it as today, made from a, a mash of cereal grains. It's not until 1964 that the United States government says that bourbon is a thing. They had been making whiskey called bourbon all that time, but there was also bourbon being made in Mexico. Uh, there was bourbon being made in France. There was bourbon being made in Canada. Um, but basically, much like everything else, it came down to money and taxes. And somebody had a ton of bourbon. They wanted to be able to export it. Uh, but why export bourbon to a country that's already making bourbon? Well, you have to make it uniquely American so that nobody else in the world can make bourbon. And that makes our product more special. And that's really all sales is, is making whatever product you're trying to sell seem like it's really special and you need it. That's what happened with bourbon is that they needed to be able to export this stuff, but you couldn't export it to a country that already made it. So you make it illegal for them to make it. And now we own bourbon. That being said, sure. If you make bourbon in other countries, it's not going to taste as good as Kentucky bourbon or any bourbon. It's not going to taste as good as Driftless Glen from Wisconsin, Iron Root from Texas, Old Soul from Mississippi. George Dickel bourbon from Tennessee, like, or hopefully this Chattanooga. All right, so Chattanooga, 
bottled in bond a little bit more than four years. This is directly off their website. Each vintage is crafted from a wide selection of unique bourbon mashfuls. This is what I like about them. They don't just make one mashville. They make a bunch of different recipes and then kind of blend them from there. All made with the same distilling season and each comprised of at least 25% specialty malted grains. So I know that they do a chocolate rye and a honey barley and, and different levels of roasting that change the barley and the rye and other grains. So there's something very, very cool there. Uh, they basically, when they list the mash bill, it comes down to barrel numbers or, or different recipe numbers. And I don't know those and I'm too lazy to go really searching around the website or the interweb to really find out. Um, the batch size is 12 barrels. They listed as a little bit more than four years. Obviously, it's bottled at 100 proof, which is 50% alcohol. By the way, 100 proof in England, 104, uh, 50% alcohol in England is 114 proof. So again, proof doesn't always tell the whole story. It can change from country to country what the proof is. The only thing that really matters is the percentage of alcohol. This is 50% alcohol. I just love, love, love Chattanooga. Mm. Mm. It's fucking delicious. It's so good. You know, Chattanooga is not available up here in Mass. And in a way, I wish they were. But in a way, I'm really glad that they're not. Because it makes, it makes this bottle a little bit more special. That... You know, somebody like my girlfriend's mom has to think highly enough of me to get it down there and then bring it to me up here. Or, you know, my friend Glenn drives up and down the East Coast a couple times a year. He swings through this. So there's some effort that has to go into getting a bottle of Chattanooga, at least geographically. And I'm not saying it makes it better or worse, but my fear is that if it came here, like I've seen with a brand like Woodenville. Woodenville is fantastic. But now that it's on the shelf everywhere, nobody seems to care about it anymore. Um, I was really excited to have it in my store. And then it just sort of eh, hasn't really sold uh, the way I had hoped it would sell with all the hype and, and sort of anticipation that we had for it uh, when it got here. So I kind of hope that Chattanooga isn't available but I hope that I always have access to it somehow through travels and, and friends uh, and family. Um, but I kind of want that one to stay special. All right. So what else happened this week in the world of spirits? Uh, Foley, which is uh, Foley is a company that's mostly uh, a wine. They're in the wine segment, uh, but they have a lot of money and a lot of buying power. Uh, I think they own the Las Vegas hockey team. Uh, they own a couple of sports teams. There's a bunch of vineyards in California. Uh, they just bought a, a shuttered distillery in, I think, Nevada, somewhere out in the southwest there. But they're also reintroducing Charles Goodnight bourbon to the market. Um, I don't know where they're getting the juice from. Supposedly, it is all Texas juice. I'm hoping to have the opportunity to taste that. 
uh, in the coming week or two. Uh, and I will report back to you guys if it's any good, if it's worth your money. Uh, it is a six-year Texas bourbon. That is impressive to me right there um, for a variety of reasons. And again, age statements don't always tell the stories. Six years in a Texas rickhouse? I'm surprised there's any whiskey left in the barrel at that point um, because of the heat that they have there. So six years in Texas is a little different than six years in Kentucky. Uh, so again, age statements don't always tell the truth. Uh, not a, that it tells the truth, but 60 corn, 36% rye, uh, 4% malted barley. But it's also Texas corn. So that's a different flavor uh, than some of the other corn that, you know, might be sourced from a different part of the country going to Kentucky. So the species, the variety of corn can also make a difference in the final product. 115 proof, um, kind of on that cusp of where I don't want to be anymore. Um, well, it makes it more of a sipper and less of a drinker. And it comes in at 80 bucks a bottle uh, MSRP. So not too bad considering the releases that are out there right now. Uh, but I will be trying that soon. I'm looking forward to it. This one blew my fucking mind. Again, fever dream alert. Belvedere 10. Yes, Belvedere, the vodka company, is releasing a vodka they call Belvedere 10. It is based on rye sourced from one rye field in a single harvest. It's distilled four times. It's rested for 10 months. Are you guys out there listening going like, can you just move on? Because I don't really give a shit about 10 months rested vodka in one rye. I don't know that anybody does. But wait, it gets better. The retail MSRP on this is $150 a bottle for vodka. Something that until two years ago was legally defined as odorless, colorless, and tasteless. It's just alcoholic water for the most part. Now, maybe, maybe there's some flavor to it. I'll even go so far as to say there probably is a really good flavor to it. But unless you're drinking it straight, you're not going to know. The, the bigger kicker is the suggested retail price for what's called on-premise, which is bars and nightclubs. $950 a bottle. So if you go to a high-end nightclub in New York or a high-end strip club or wherever and you want a bottle of Belvedere 10, it's going to run you $950. Are you fucking kidding me? It's vodka. First of all, for bourbon, I wouldn't pay $950 for a bourbon that was rested 10 months. And that is certainly much harder to make than vodka is. Out of their mind, again, going after the luxury. And do you think people with the kind of money it takes to buy a $950 bottle of vodka in a fucking strip club have respect for Belvedere for that? Listen up, Matthew Lillard. A uh, couple other releases to get to. Redbreast releasing their Tawny Port release. This goes in line with the PX and the Lustau Sherry releases. Kind of in that same vein. Uh, very excited about that. It's going to be 92 proof. 100 bucks on the shelf. Here's another mind-blowing one. Piggyback. 
announcing the release of their whatever they call their wood finish series last year it was the david ortiz poppy where they finished it with david ortiz baseball bats i don't know if they actually did that or not um their alfa romeo f1 series it's piggyback finished in lychee and oolong tea barrels 96.77 on the richter scale that's proof not percentage uh 50 bucks on the shelf what lychee and oolong tea i i i don't even know what to say about that other than the shit is going too far uh and the last one blade and bow announcing this year's release of the 22 um it's a 22 year age statement although i don't know if they call it blade and bow 22 or they call it blade and bow 22 year there is a difference again semantics sometimes you put things on the label but if there's no guidelines governing them you can get away with it but the theory as they present it is that it's a solera aged bourbon with the youngest bourbon in the solera blend being 22 years old and they're laying claim that in these barrels there is still some old stitzel weller juice made by pappy van winkle i have two books sitting here in front of me um, that i highly highly recommend one is a book called pappy land and that is written by wright thompson and it's basically wright thompson following around julian van winkle talking about the van winkle family and in all these sorts of things fascinating fascinating look into the family uh, but there is a chapter where they go to the opening of the Stitzel Weller Distillery and they talk about what absolute bullshit the stories they tell are. So to think that they still have old Pappy Van Winkle distilled juice that they're blending into this bottle, I don't buy it for a second. Um, I was there. I heard their spiel in person. Uh, it definitely sounds like a corporate spiel um, from some guy with an English degree. Uh, out of college or girl with an English degree, whoever kind of wrote their spiels. MSRP, nothing listed, although it is selling on an online site on Reserve Bar for $780. Um, if it's a Solaris system and the youngest whiskey in there is 22 and you're going back to Stitzel Weller juice, how long has that liquid been in touch with the oak? I don't know. I don't know. Uh, either way, I'm not going to see a bottle of it. Um, but I certainly wouldn't buy it if if I had the chance. And if it's going for seven eighty on reserve bar, it's probably going for like a fucking thousand dollars at the Stitzel Weller Distillery. All right, I'm going to crack one here um, because we just sort of mentioned it that prior to 1964, uh, you can make bourbon anywhere in the world. There's no cork pop. Why? Because there's no cork. Is that a bad thing? Not necessarily, uh, but I got a feeling in this case it might be. Uh, oh, yeah. So, again, certain things on the label make sense, don't make sense, are real, are not real. Uh, things like the term small batch, by the way, in bourbon, no actual meaning to it. There's no federal guideline that says what small batch means. So you can just throw small batch on there and you're good to go. There's also, surprisingly, no federal guidelines that define the term single barrel. Hmm. 
So you can put single barrel on there, even if it's not from a single barrel. You could actually take a couple of barrels, blend them into one barrel, bottle it off of that, and call it a single barrel. Hmm. I feel like we've just gotten a little closer to solving the riddle of Blanton's. Why it tastes the same every single time out. Maybe it's not a true single barrel. Hmm. Very, very interesting. All right. So what I have just poured is from Crown Royal. But you said it's Bourbon Heritage Month. Crown Royal is a Canadian whiskey. Exactly. Just another point to prove here. I don't know if this is still in the market. I've had this for a little bit of time. Um, there's barely any out of it, so I think I might have tasted it once and then put it on the shelf and completely forgot about it. Now, Crown Royal does a bunch of bottlings. You know, they do the standard Crown Royal. Uh, they do, obviously, the apple and the peach and the salted caramel. They do some higher end, uh, what they call the Noble Collection with some rye. They put out a 21-year apple whiskey this year, which is fucking mind-boggling to me for 250 bucks. But again, you're betting on one sucker walking through the door. But they also made, they made something called Crown Royal Black or, yeah, something like that. But this one is Crown Royal Bourbon Mash. So it's listed as Bourbon Mash. So somehow they can get away with putting the name Bourbon on the bottle, even though it's not a bottle. And under, not a Bourbon. Underneath it, it says Blended Canadian Whiskey. So I should put a picture of this up. I'll put this up on Instagram uh, on the day the podcast comes out. Bourbon mash bill. So, in theory, what they have done here is in Canada, they've taken Canadian grown corn, Canadian rye, Canadian barley, and they have made a whiskey in accordance to the guidelines of bourbon, but it's made in Canada, it's aged in Canada, it's bottled in Canada. Let's see what we've got here. Now, it is bottled at 80 proof. And also in Canada, kind of important to know that Canadian rye doesn't even have to contain rye. And for people who don't think that there's any corn in Canada, there's a fucking ton of corn. The corn belt that runs through the Midwest of this country runs all the way up into Canada. So they have a ton of corn. Now, on the nose, this does not smell like any bourbon I've ever smelt. It almost smells a little minty. All right, here we go. Tell me again how knowing the mash bill means knowing that it's good. I don't know what the mash bill is on it, but I guarantee you if I said it, if I knew it, you'd go like, oh, well, that sounds like it could be tasty. Totally discounting the fact that it's made in Canada with Canadian corn, using Canadian water, aged in Canadian temperatures. It's not bourbon. It's honestly not a bad whiskey, but it's it's softer, it's lighter, it's thinner. It's, again, it's not terrible. Um, I don't know what I'm going to drink during the Sunday night Patriots game or the Monday night Steelers game. 
I was thinking Driftless Glen, but for this being an 80 proofer, I can probably just bang this down between the two the two games altogether. Um, not a terrible bottling, not something I carry in my store, not something I really want to carry because I don't think customers want a bourbon mash bill from another country, but it does kind of show that even though you use the same recipe, if you make it somewhere else, it will taste different. And that doesn't mean that Kentucky bourbon is a better whiskey or that Tennessee bourbon or that Wisconsin bourbon is a better whiskey than this. It just means that they're different. And by knowing the mash bill doesn't mean that you know the story. Speaking of football, um, I'm sorry, this is the first year I'm really, really excited about football in a long time. Definitely lost interest during COVID watching football played in an empty stadium. Uh, just wasn't appealing to me. Just didn't feel right. Um, and then I just sort of got away from it. And then this year is the first year that I'm really excited to really get back into football. Uh, I mean, what's more American than, than football and bourbon? I mean, that's, that's it right there. And, you know, week one, if this really is what we're going to have this season, what a great season it's going to be. That being said, my Steelers got dump trucked, absolutely dump trucked by the San Francisco 49ers. Um, and I don't know if that is indicative of the Steelers not being as good as I hoped they would be, or is it more indicative of San Francisco is just that good? Um Kansas City Chiefs losing, losing on opening night. That shakes everything up. Um, you know, Cincinnati Bengals losing. It's a team that I thought was going to go for the distance. Philadelphia and New England, I feel like New England should have won that game. Um, I truly feel that Belichick sometimes outsmarts himself and outcoaches himself and likes to prove to everybody how smart he is. And sometimes... You know, we've all been around that person who feels the need to show you that they're smarter than you and actually does something really fucking stupid. And I feel like that's what happened in that game. Patriots should have won that. But to me, the highlight or the I don't want to say the highlight because it, it sounds awful, but that Jets game on Monday night, so many things to take away from that. Aaron Rodgers comes out, and I know, like I joked about it, I said it to a lot of people, like, you know, a few years ago, we had a, an opening game, I believe it was against the Chiefs, uh, Brady got hit low right in the beginning of the game, took him out for the whole season, we still went, I think, 12-4 and four that year, still had a great year, and I kind of joked, I'm like, oh, I hope Rodgers gets knocked out, and not because Aaron Rodgers, but when anything gets as hyped as Pappy or Taylor Swift or Aaron Rodgers, like you just want to see it come back down to earth a little bit. I didn't really want him to get hurt and blow out the rest of his season, potentially the rest of his career. That was awful. It's awful for the players around them. But what I learned immediately is that the Jets are a shit team with a shit coach. And I know somebody's going to go like, whoa, that's a little harsh. Here's what I saw. You know, hard knocks. Everybody's excited. Aaron Rodgers is coming in. The coaches all have smiles. The head coach is a defensive coach. Aaron Rodgers is an offensive player. Aaron Rodgers gets the offensive coordinator that he wants. So all that's going to work. And the defensive head coach is thinking like, this is my ticket. I'm going to be a legend. I'm going to get to coach Aaron Rodgers to the Super Bowl. Nothing else. He's just 
he puts everything on Aaron Rodgers. Aaron Rodgers goes down, and I'm a big believer in momentum, body language, attitude. When you looked at the sideline, when they showed the head coach of the Jets, he's staring down at the ground. He's not looking at Zach Wilson, Aaron Rodgers' backup, and going like, hey, you know what? Shit happens. We got you. We got your back. We're behind you. Let's go win this. He's not firing the team up. They're sinking. They're like, oh, shit, already. Four plays into the game. They're thinking their whole season is over. That head coach is not doing a damn thing to change their attitude or their mentality. Nobody's rallying the troops to be like, hey, you know what? We had a whole offseason with him. <coughs> we learned a lot. We're prepared. Next man up. What did the Patriots always say when they were on their championship run? Somebody gets injured, next man up. What I saw from the Jets was it was one man. And when that man went down, the whole team went down with it. And coach did nothing to rally his troops. That shows me you're a shit team with a shit coach who really didn't believe in the rest of the team. They really just thought, like, I'm going to give the ball to Aaron Rodgers and ride his back all the way through. And now that that plan has backfired, man, it'll be interesting to see what happens when they go into Dallas. And, yeah, they did end up winning the game. But Josh Allen turned the ball over four times, gave them a short field, and then they won on a walk-off kick, uh, punt return. So it's not like you know the troops were rallied, and the punt return was done by a guy who barely hung on through training camp, basically forced his way onto the team because of his attitude and energy and drive. That's who won the game. A, a very sort of irrelevant player who shouldn't have been a star that day, but he was. Had nothing to do with coaching. Nobody rallied the troops. I wouldn't be surprised if their body language and they just get stomped next week against Dallas. All right. I'm going to continue on that theme of the replacement uh, when I come back. So I'm going to take a quick break, uh, grab. Ooh, yeah, I know what I'm going to grab. I'm going to grab some good whiskey um, and then we'll wrap up. All right, here we are. Man, these guys banging over my head, driving me nuts. I don't know what they're building up there. Um, wow. It's, uh, it's a lot. But I've got whiskey, and that will make it better. All right, so you know, before the break, I was talking about this Aaron Rodgers and the whole body language and the whole slumping in, you know, Zach Wilson, I mean, got them through the game. But I, I get it. It's not it's not Aaron Rodgers. It's not sexy. There's no status. Nobody wants to tell anybody that we won a Super Bowl with Zach Wilson. We want to tell people that we won a Super Bowl with Aaron fucking Rodgers, who came here as an MVP from Green Bay, where he won a Super Bowl before. You know, all the lights and the pomp and circumstances and everything is just so hyped up. And we want to live that dream. And when that dream isn't available, we don't want the alternative. We don't We don't care. I, it, it almost looked like, like they didn't care if they could win the game. They didn't care about the rest of the season. Like, oh, if we can't have that, then eh, it's over. Um, just a terrible, terrible sort of just body language. And then what it reminded me of 
was a, a conversation that I had at work uh, this week. And by the way, that cork pop, that pretty, pretty cork pop song. This one was a gift to me by my friend Murph. Uh, I got this maybe a year or so ago. This is the Knob Creek 15 year. So older than the Knob Creek that I drank last week. Same proof, same recipe. We'll see what three more years does to it. So, yeah, it. I had this conversation at work because I have a lot of new, younger employees working the front end, answering the phones, and it is, it's hunting season. And the amount of times during the week that I am in the office, I'm doing work, and, you know, one of the kids who are nice enough kids, but they just don't know sort of all of this nonsense and the circus that goes on and, and the whole charade. So they'll come back and go like, uh, I've got a customer out there and he's looking for Blanton's. Tell him, no, we don't have any. Uh, you know, I, I got a customer who wants to order a case of Weller. Yeah, we don't do that. So I kind of jokingly said like, you know, first of all, the answer is always like, if you're calling, the answer is no. Um, that's just pretty standard. Again, if you're a hunter, you're a hunter. That's fine. That's how you want to spend your time, whatever. Um, but put the effort into it. You know, um, I know actual hunters, guys with guns who go out and shoot deer for, you know, eating for venison. They don't just wake up one morning, grab a gun and go sit in the woods. Like they make sure the gun is clean. They go out and they build a tree stand. They put all the effort in, you know, they put on, you know, their camouflage. Like there's a whole effort. There's a whole process that goes into it before you get up in that tree stand and start looking for deer to pluck off. It's no different in pappy season. You don't just walk into a store in November and go like, hey, can I get a bottle of pappy? And I'm going to look at you and go, I've never seen you before. Yes, I've been waiting for you all year to come in. It doesn't work like that. It takes effort. And sometimes that effort is timing. Sometimes that effort is effort. You know, sometimes it's just, you know, you're a customer who comes in all year round. You you buy your beer there. You buy your wine there. You buy your Jim Beam there. Um, you know, you, you're a good customer. You're, you're nice. You're easy to deal with, you know, and then at the end of the year, like, sure. If, if there's something you're looking for and I have it, that's, you're got a better chance to get it, you know, because to me, my philosophy is always, I want to put the right bottle in the right hands of the right people. And I'll tell this story because this also happened in the past week of, I had a customer come in, um, and she was looking in the bourbon aisle. So I approached, you know, if they need any help, I never hard sell. I just always offer, like, if you need any help, if you need suggestions, whatever. Um, and she said, you know, her brother was getting married. He likes, you know, Knob Creek. He likes Woodford. He likes Maker's Mark. He likes good bourbons. She's, you know, she's looking for a bottle of bourbon for the rehearsal dinner, but she's not rattling off the usual suspects. She's not rattling off. Well, do you have any Buffalo Trace? Do you have any Taylor? She's not asking for that. She's just telling me what her brother likes for bourbon. I had recently gotten a couple of bottles of E.H. Taylor in, and I said, you know, if you want something special, it's a special occasion. I've got a bottle of E.H. Taylor out back that I haven't put out on the shelf yet. If you want it, it's yours. She immediately got excited because it was something she wasn't expecting. And in my mind and in my heart, 
you're now going to go back to that rehearsal dinner with some people who may have heard of this, uh, who may have even gone out and tried to look for it. And that person now looks like a hero. Uh, and people are going to come together, ask her where she got it. They're going to have great conversation. They're going to remember that rehearsal dinner. They're not going to remember what the whiskey tasted like. They'll remember that it's good because each Taylor small batch is fucking delicious. But the point is, is it made a moment and it wasn't a hunter. It was just sort of something in my heart and in my head said, this is the person who deserves this bottle. By the same token, I had a woman come in a day or two later with a list. I'm looking for these bourbons. Do you have any Weller? No. Do you have any Eagle Rare? No. And then she actually pulls out the list. I'm like, oh, so you're looking for all the hardest to find whiskeys. Well, you know, my husband sent me out looking. I don't know how many times I have seen this where my husband sent me out looking for this. Or my grandson said, hey, if you can find this out there. So there are hunters who are employing people in their family, in their friend circle to go out and hunt for them. Brilliant. You're covering a lot of ground, but you're not getting anywhere. You're wasting your time. So those things happen at the same time where people who don't even know what they're looking for come in with a list looking for something. Years ago at the store, we did like a eight days of Christmas thing or something where I put out a, an allocated bottle every day. And I had put a bottle of E.H. Taylor out in the scotch section. And I had a customer who was standing there at eye level, asked me if we have any E.H. Taylor. They were looking directly at the bottle. Here's my philosophy on it. There are people like myself, like the people I know in my circle, like a lot of my customers who will buy E.H. Taylor because they truly, absolutely enjoy drinking it. They know what the bottle looks like. Um, In E.H. Taylor, uh, another story with E.H. Taylor, uh, I was in, we have a a store in another city in Worcester here, and uh, there was a customer standing out in front of the counter and looking at all the specialty whiskeys behind the counter. uh, And it says, you know, like, which one, you know, which one's the best value? And I was like, the E.H. Taylor is the best value. So which bottle is that? Now, if you've never seen a bottle of E.H. Taylor, Google it right now and then tell me how you miss a bright yellow tube amongst a bunch of brown and green and dark bottles behind the counter. Like the E.H. Taylor, and I hate the term in this business, but it pops. Um, The yellow tube just jumps right off the shelf. So if you're looking at that and you don't know what it looks like, and there's somebody like me out there who wants to drink it, why should the person who's looking for it for status and to resell it, take it away from the person who honestly just wants to buy it, enjoy it, share it at you know a rehearsal dinner, at a bereavement, at you know an anniversary, at a college graduation, who wants to commemorate a moment with a really good bottle of bourbon, why shouldn't they be the ones to get it as opposed to the person who doesn't even know what they're looking at. I don't know. I just try to play it fair that way. Um, And I get some people out there are like, well, it's not fair. You know, I get there first. I'm looking out for my customers. um, 
And again, it's getting the right bottle in the right hands of the right people. So back to the Jets thing of like, if we don't have Aaron Rodgers, we just don't, we don't want it at all. We're done. We'll wait until next year. I had jokingly made the comment of, you know, like, guys, if anybody's calling, the answer is no. And then I said, like, I'm just going to write up a list of bourbons that we say no to over the phone. Pappy, Taylor, Rock Hill Farm, Hancock Reserve, um, Stag, uh, Thomas Handy, you know, any of those whiskeys, the answer is no if you're calling. 99% of the time, the answer is no if you're in the store. I've never seen you and you're asking. The answer is no. And the comment was made to me of, you know, if you do that list, it's a really good idea, but you should put a comparable on there as well. That, hey, if we don't have this, we can sell them this. And in theory, it's a great idea. It's a wonderful idea. It's a brilliant idea. The problem is, is it's not Godiva chocolate. Godiva used to make a chocolate liqueur. Actually, Diageo used to make a chocolate liqueur that had the Godiva name on it. Whatever happened, that relationship severed. Godiva chocolate liqueur no longer exists. So now I have to scramble to find a replacement product. So when people come in and they're looking for Godiva chocolate, and why are they looking for Godiva chocolate liqueur? They're going to make cocktails with it. They're buying it to drink. They care about the flavor. I need a replacement product. When I couldn't get Midori because Beam Suntory was putting all the Midori into those shit on the rocks, pre-made Midori sour. So there was no Midori in the marketplace. I had to go out and find another melon liqueur. Why? Because people who buy Midori are buying it to drink. They're buying it to make Midori sours and melon balls and Pearl Harbors and whatever else they're doing with it. It just, that's what it is. Um, you know, we did a, a TikTok video of liquor dupes. Like somebody's coming in looking for Grey Goose. Well, you can switch them off to Kettle. Why? Because they're drinking it and their buying decision is based on the taste. It doesn't work that way with allocated whiskeys. Every now and then I can get a customer who's coming in who wants to buy a bottle of Weller because they used to drink Weller. And they enjoyed Weller, but they can't find it anymore. Well, then I can switch them over to like a Rebel 100 because they both taste pretty similar. They're both wheat whiskeys. They're both 100 proof. Actually, Weller, one of them is 90, one of them is 107. So it splits the difference. And much like Weller used to be, it's $20 available on the shelf. If somebody comes in looking for E.H. Taylor small batch, Giving them four roses small batch is not going to work. It might. One in a hundred chance. But chances are the people who are looking for E.H. Taylor are not looking for Zach Wilson. They're looking for Aaron Rodgers. People who are looking for Pappy are not looking for Zach Wilson. There is no alternative to Pappy. There is no alternative to to Michter's 10. I can't say like, I don't have any Michter's 10, but I have this great Knob Creek 12. Based on what I tasted last time of Michter's 10, um, it wasn't that good. And now that it's gone up in price, it gets even less attractive to me. 
To me, the Knob Creek 12 right now is a better whiskey than the last batch of Michter's 10 I tasted. But that doesn't matter. It's not Michter's 10. So, and, and again, I'm, I'm not knocking the person who presented the idea. It's a great idea. The point is, is when people want these status allocated bottles that come out once a year, they don't want to be switched off to a Four Roses small batch. One, because you can buy Four Roses small batch in January, February, March, April, May, all year round. You can buy each Taylor small batch sporadically throughout the year if you come across a bottle. And if you come across a bottle for a ridiculous price, Pappy, you can buy Pappy once a year. Now, there are stores that charge 1100 bucks, like a store down the street from me for old rip tenure. And those people are out of their minds and they're doing as much to ruin the bourbon industry as all the other little things. But the person who's looking for old rip 10 cannot be converted to a Russell's 10. It's just not the same when you're buying for status as opposed to buying to drink. All right. Speaking of drinking, I'm fucking rambling here. I'm not doing any drinking. So this is Knob Creek 15. Last week I tasted the Knob Creek 12. So same exact mash bill, same exact distillery, potentially the same exact rickhouses, only three more years of age. Is older better? Here we go. It's good. I honestly think the 12 has got a little fuller mouthfeel. It's a little rounder. And for the price differential, because I think for the extra three years, it almost doubles in price. And it's not always available. The 12 year is always available. I don't think the extra three years make it that much better that you can charge that much more money for it. Other than it's limited and rare. It's a good whiskey. I like it. There's a reason it's in my collection and I have a sentimental value because it was given to me by a friend. Um, but if I had to pick between the 12 or the 15, I'm going 12 all day long. So what have we learned so far? Knowing the Mashville doesn't always tell the whole story. In fact, sometimes it can deceive. Proof points doesn't always tell the whole story. Sometimes it can be deceiving. Yes, sometimes lower proof means lighter whiskey. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes fuller proof whiskeys just mean that they're hot and, and not necessarily have more body. Um, you know, where it's made changes things, where it's aged in the rickhouse changes things. The yeast strain changes things. How long the fermentation process lasts changes things. There are all these things that factor in. And then let alone that every tree is unique, which means every barrel of whiskey is unique because every piece of wood is unique. So there are so many things that go into affecting the flavor of bourbon that you know, knowing some facts and some buzzwords helps you and it can help you to navigate the landscape. Um, but it also doesn't make you a whiskey expert either. <sighs> All right. I don't often do this. Uh, and I have been nursing this bottle for a very long, long time. 
Um, and this seemed like a perfect, perfect excuse to revisit it. This is one of those ones that I nursed all the way down because I get it. I don't know when I'm ever going to see this again. And quite honestly, I haven't seen this in quite a bit of time. You know, as much as I pick on Buffalo Trace, uh, again, I go back to the, the Stephen A. Smith thing. It's not that he hates the Cowboys. It's that he hates the Cowboys fans. And I think it's the same thing. It's all the hype and the pomp and circumstance that's created around it that no matter what happens to it, the hype and the pomp and the circumstance is still just over the top. And you, you got to kind of dial it back and take it down a peg. I love Buffalo Trace products. I think that Benchmark is a great whiskey. I think that you know Buffalo Trace is a great whiskey. Eagle Rare is a great whiskey. I've done store picks of Eagle Rare and Buffalo Trace. E.H. Uh, Taylor's Small Batch, one of my absolute favorite bottles of bourbon uh, when I can get my hands on it. And a lot of those bourbons, when they come into my store, people go like, oh, you must have all the good stuff. I don't. I don't buy, very rarely do I ever buy a specialty bottle from my own store. Those are for my customers. Uh, those are for the relationships that I have built, for all the things that I preach about, about, you know, you need to come in the store all year round and, you know, talk to me, be a good customer, you know, all these other things would have no value if I didn't deliver those bottles at the end of the year uh, when people are looking for them. So I don't keep them for myself. Every now and then there's one that comes along. Maybe I get two or three bottles of it and I can spare one to myself. Um, there's only ever been one or two bottles that have come in where I'm like, no, that one's coming home. Uh, with me. And I still stand by the fact that if that maker's mark seller aged ever shows up in my store, I'm sorry guys, but that one is, is coming home with me and no, I won't be paying cost for it. I'll be paying full on retail for that. But here is another one of my favorite bottlings that comes out of the Buffalo trace uh, distillery. This is Elmer T Lee single barrel sour mash. It's also another term that doesn't really carry any weight um, because almost all of your bourbons are a sour mash. Um, Hard Truth uses a sweet mash. Uh, Peerless uses a sweet mash. Uh, but pretty much everybody else uses a sour mash. One, it's far more cost effective. Uh, when we were at, I believe it was Maker's Mark, and they talked about how often they have to clean um, – the stills, it's once every three or four months, maybe two to three times a year, they clean the stills. Because of that sour mash process, you're always using a little bit from the last batch to ignite the next batch. <coughs> Sweet mash just means you start fresh every time. So, you know, seeing sour mash on the label doesn't mean that there's anything sour about it. Um, it has no indication of anything other than the process used to make it. Some people use it as a, a you know a gimmicky you know sour mash, but you know Jack Daniels obviously is the big one that promotes that sour mash right on there. I think the new Ezra Brooks uh, ninety nine listed as a sour mash as well, but that's just part of the process. It has nothing to do uh, with anything other than the process. Kentucky Straight Bourbon Whiskey single barrel 
So again, no real guidelines or regulations on that. It could be from multiple barrels blended into one single barrel. It could honestly be one single barrel, um, but it is bottled at 90 proof, which, you know, all the chirp is, oh, that's too low in proof. Do you have any Elmer T. Lee? This is one of those rare allocated bottles that people look for every year. Oddly enough, I feel like I haven't seen it in a couple years. And this one, fun little story. When Corey first started working with me, uh, doing the Whiskey Wednesday videos and tasting whiskey and really starting to enjoy and appreciate it, um, you know, we got to the, the silly season a few years ago. And he was looking for, you know, he wanted to spend up and get a good bottle of whiskey. And I kind of knock a lot of these allocated whiskeys, but I truly believe that every one of us, and we've all done it, even amongst my, you know, my friends, Jason and Sean and Peter and Glenn and Kevin, and we've all bought these really expensive status bottles. Uh, we bought them because we were curious. We heard they were good. We tried them. We liked them. But then we realized like, I'm not paying 200 bucks a bottle. And as the prices keep going up, they just sort of become a non-factor in our lives. And we started to all look for more sort of interesting, affordable, available whiskeys. So it's not like we've never bought these bottles before. Uh, we've kind of bought them and moved on from them a little bit. But it doesn't mean that they're not good. It just means that I'm not willing to pay uh, the price. And again, going back to like you bought it, do you drink it? Are you happy with what you paid for it? There was a time when I was, and now there is a time when I'm not. But Corey was like, you know, I want to get a good bottle. It's the holidays. And I said, every every bourbon drinker should have at least one status bottle in their collection. Um, as far as the status that everybody else puts on it. I have a ton of status bottles in my collection, but they have status to me for different reasons other than hype and, and hoopla. So I sold bottle, Corey a bottle of Elmer T. Lee, and he loved it. I loved it. It's just it's sad because it's always been the most affordable one, and yet it's the one that seems to have vanished entirely off the landscape the last few years. All right, here we go. Simple, smooth. It's delicious. It's not in the category of the Russell 16. It's not in the category of Parker's Double Barrel. But it's really, really good. Now, would I pay hundreds of dollars for it? No. Um, unfortunately, that's where the market goes. But yeah, fantastic, fantastic bottle. Oh, that's so good. And maybe a fitting way to kind of finish up this podcast. Awesome. Thank you guys so much for sticking around and listening all the way till the end. Um, I know it's not easy sometimes. Um, but yeah, thank you. Um, and if you are still here listening, you guys know the drill. Go to the podcast page, click that follow button, give it a five-star rating, share it out on your social media. Follow along on Facebook and Instagram. I'm always posting pictures of things that I'm actually drinking, actually reading, actually listening to. Um, you can leave comments and reviews about the podcast on both of those platforms. You can also message me directly on both of those platforms. And for anything else, you can email me at thespiritsguide89 at gmail.com. All right. I'm looking forward to this weekend in football. Uh, 
Patriots Dolphins on Sunday night. I have high hopes for the Pats in that one after last week. And Steelers and uh, Cleveland, the Browns, on Monday night. My Steelers in prime time. That means two good nights of drinking whiskey. Uh, hopefully for joy in both of them. And, uh, yeah, we'll be back next week. And, uh, yeah, have a good week, guys. Cheers.